Hey everyone, welcome to the Hometown Fresh Podcast, the show that talks all things grocery, customer service, career development, agriculture, and more. I'm Gracie, social media coordinator for Harps Food Stores, and today we'll be hearing from the first known dairy farmer to implement a robotic milking system into their operation in the state of Oklahoma, Logan Courtney. Logan is a sixth generation farmer and has a fascinating story as to how he acquired his dairy operation and began making steps towards a more efficient way of farming. How are you today, Logan? Doing well, doing well. I feel like we have been playing phone tag for the past two weeks. Hi. I mean, at least we finally got it figured out. <laughs> yes, I'm so sorry. And then when I started having technical difficulties, I was like, oh, no, not today. Not today. Oh, it's a part of it. Part of it. It is. I felt so bad. I was like, I hope he knows no. I am a professional. Like, <laughs> Well, I mean, heck, I mean, last time I just saw you hanging and I'm like, I don't have a phone. And yeah. No, honestly. Bad. I'm sorry. No, you're totally fine. Um, oh, yeah. What? Well, I just felt back. Like, I'm never not, like, I don't leave my phone somewhere. It's in my hand 24-7. And I'm like, oh, yeah. No. But it's. It, I know you're fine. Honestly, I looked at my coworker. I was like, I hope he's alive. Like, I just hope. (laughs) (laughs) So, So I was just driving and like half the screen goes black and the other is in like stripes. And I'm like, oh no. Oh, that's awful. Oh, yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't fun. That's for sure. Yeah. Actually, one coworker was like, maybe he dropped his phone into the, the, oh my gosh. What is it called that the milk is kept in? Oh, the milk tank? Yeah, she was like, maybe he dropped his phone in the milk tank. And I was like, that is such a stretch. But maybe he did. I don't know. Hey, it it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, I get dropped everywhere. Luckily, I've never done that. But, you know, it's always a possibility. Oh, always. Well, I'm glad we're finally talking. Um, So I'll just start off by having you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Mm -hmm. Okay. So my name is Logan Courtney, and I am a sixth generation farmer and I am a dairy farmer. Uh, We farm in northeastern Oklahoma uh, near the town of Shoto. Um, We've been farming in the same county. Uh, Parts of my family have been farming here for 200 years and we're really proud of our agricultural heritage and farming may not always be the most glamorous of career choices but it's a crucial part of any culture's um, survival. Really proud to be a part of agriculture and specifically producing dairy products uh, Mm -hmm. for the consumer. Yeah. Yeah. And I did some research on your family and I actually got to go tour Mm -hmm. your operation last summer and that was really Mm -hmm. cool. Um, So didn't your family, you guys got started off in dairy originally and then Mm -hmm. your family kind of moved over to beef and then you're the one that brought it back to dairy. Absolutely. So um, originally we were dairy farmers. We have a large photo hanging in our uh, dairy barn office of the milk delivery wagon. There was a horse-drawn little wagon buggy thing, and they delivered bottles of milk. Um, Of course, a lot of things have changed, just like in any industry, and dairy farming left the family for a little while, kind of after the Second World War. A lot of things changed in agriculture, as it did a lot of industries across the country, and we kind of more so transitioned to beef cattle, hog production, crops, that kind of industry. Um, as a kid in 4-H, I became very interested in the dairy industry. I was able to exhibit dairy cattle in 4-H, and it kind of was able to make a, a hobby of a, as a kid into a career as an adult to make mm-hmm. my living milking cows. And so we started milking commercially in 2017. 
Um, our dairy is a little bit different, as you saw when you were out. We milk with robotics, and yeah. that was something new for the state of Oklahoma. Uh, it's not necessarily new technology, but it's new in our region, so it was exciting to be able to bring those innovations to the area and see uh, a couple other operations adopt robotics to meet their farm goals and uh, to ease up on labor issues and stuff that, you know, plague a lot of industries. It's the benefit of milking with robots. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you're actually answering a bunch of my questions that I'm about to ask you. That's good. <laughs> um, so what made you want to get back into dairy? I know you said you got started in 4-H, mm-hmm. but what was it that drove you from, okay, I want to stay in agriculture, but I want to do something mm-hmm. a little bit different? So for me, um, obviously my parents farm and stuff and there was a an ability that I could come back and farm um, but agriculture has very tight profit margins like a lot of industries it's not unique to ag I know mm-hmm. and so I needed to find something that would be more specifically my you know source of income my part of the operation and finding my place on the farm mm-hmm. um, I had a big interest in dairy especially in breeding dairy cattle and their management and care and that sort of thing. And so dairy created a perfect opportunity. You can run a profitable dairy operation on a much smaller piece of land than you would need for running beef cattle, for example, uh, or crops or anything like that. And so I was able to run a dairy on a relatively small piece of land that I leased from my parents Mm -hmm. and still make a, a modest living. I mean, nothing glamorous, obviously, but you know, but yeah, it's, I, it's your own and you kind of get to exactly. be the leader of your own thing. That's cool. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm being on a pretty diverse farming operation. It kind of enabled me to be able to do what I had a big interest in, which I have, a, I have an interest in agriculture in general, obviously, but it really just created that opportunity where I could still be involved on the main farm, but also have my own thing and not just be an employee of my parents. Right. No, you get to contribute something that's your mm-hmm. own. That's cool. Oh, yeah. So how did you learn about robotic milking and what led you to the decision to invest in this method of dairy farming? So uh, robotics within the dairy industry have been around for about 20 years. So it's not necessarily new technology. It's something really common in Europe and been a little slower taking off in the United States, but it is a a growing part of the dairy industry, especially on smaller farms, Mm -hmm. um, simply because it enables a farm that doesn't have a large number of employees to be able to still milk their cows and still get all the work done on the farm that needs done. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was familiar with robotics, probably never expected to make the switch to robotics initially. Our original plans were to build a more traditional parlor where the cows come in, cows are fed and milked on a schedule and um, a little more mainstream the way it is. But obviously, as with any startup, the cost of putting in a traditional barn was actually going to be higher than investing in the technology to simply just install robotics. Really? Oh, yeah. That's <laughs> so, crazy. And, and it is crazy to think about. And that's what I always tell anybody who's looking at building a new traditional parlor. If robotics are something that they have an interest in, they should always explore that avenue. And so it ended up being made more financial sense, um, as well as the fact that uh, robotics create an environment that we are more flexible with our time. Mm -hmm. We're able to still have a life away from the dairy instead of always being tied to having to be home to milk at 
you know, certain times. We're still on call 24-7 to take care of the animals, to make sure the equipment is running correctly and to monitor the computers. But we're able to attend things. If there's a wedding or a funeral or a birthday party or a ball game, uh, we're able to get off the farm. Um, Obviously, you're still on call. You still have to answer if there is an issue that needs attention. It's not hands-off, but, you know, it does create a little more flexibility, which makes it nice to have a healthy balance of social life and still being involved in an industry that we love. Right. So I'm going to rewind just a little bit um, Mm -hmm. because we might have some listeners that have never been on a dairy farm. Oh, absolutely. And maybe they don't know the difference between a traditional parlor and robotic milking. Mm-hmm. Um, so for someone who is completely new to it, unfamiliar, can you kind of explain the difference and what each operation entails? So in a more traditional setting, um, and of course, there's a variety of barns that are used for uh, milking cows. So there's not one cookie cutter mold that shows, you know, this is the only way to milk cows. There's a lot of different styles of barns and different facilities that are used to produce dairy. In a traditional setting, the cows are brought in two to three times a day are brought through the barn, they're fed normally, they're milked, um, and then turned back out to pasture or back into their barn, spend their day going about their business. So it's a very hands-on, you have to be there every 8 to 12 hours to milk cows. You have to be either, you know, be there all the time if you don't have employees or find reliable help that understand the importance of how the cows are cared for, how they're handled, and the importance of maintaining a good quality product in Robotic, the cows choose when they milk. Every cow in our herd wears an identification collar, which is very similar to a Fitbit or an activity monitor of some kind. Okay. Uh, This identifies the cow. It's basically her pass card that she can go get milked when she chooses. And so our cows set their own schedule. They're very much like they work from home. And (laughs) so it creates a lot more independence for the cows. This has a lot of benefit. The cows can adjust their milking schedules with the temperature. So if it's hot and muggy in the summertime and they really just want to chill out and relax with their friends, they can chill out and relax with their friends and milk when it cools off. And so they, it just creates a more comfortable environment for the cows. Uh, we're never herding the cows around. We're not interrupting their daily schedule. They really set their own schedule. And we're simply there to monitor and make sure that everyone is using the robot. We're able to still assess the cows. Does anyone show any signs that she needs attention of some sort? They basically cows do what they want to do and it creates for a a very quiet herd of cows that are living their best life and at the end of the day that's what we care the most about is that our cows are happy calm relaxed and well fed yeah that's awesome so in a traditional parlor i just want to make it clear so typically Mm -hmm. you you bring them in twice a day Mm -hmm. and you have to have people there like you said hands-on you know, hook up each cow to the machine that is going to be doing the milking. Yes. Um, a stanchion is what um, the cow would walk into to be milked in. Oh, um, that's okay. kind of some older stall. It's basically like the stall that they come into. Okay. So we, we would call it a parlor stall. The cows enter, uh, the cow will then be cleaned, you know, make sure the udder's disinfected, that there's no dirt, dust, or debris that she's picked up from out in the field or um, walking to and from the barn, for example. Mm-hmm. The cows are cleaned, assessed for udder health, make sure everything looks good. There's a quality check on the milk just to make sure it's the right color, everything looks right. Then the machines are attached. The cow will spend three to five minutes uh, being milked, um, and that's two to three times a day, depending on what the farm setup is and what their schedule is and management practices are. Okay. Um, and then the cow leaves the barn, you know, but she's brought in and out of the barn to be milked and 
uh, which is still an excellent way to dairy farm. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just, uh, it just requires a little more of a labor aspect. No. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to be a little more specific about like, oh, yeah. what it looks like from the time you mm-hmm. get the cow in until you get it out. Uh, because robotics is so interesting to me. And so mm-hmm. I just wanted to be able to distinguish the, oh, the differences. So, and robotics follow a very similar procedure. You know, the cow walks in, um, but instead of having to have an employee or one of the, one of the family out there physically milking the cows, uh, the cow comes in, the robot will identify who she is with her collar, and then it will prep her udder. So do the disinfecting, the cleaning, check the quality of the milk. So that way we ensure that we're producing the best quality product possible. Mm-hmm. Um, the robot will then pull 101 units of information from that cow that she has collected from her activity monitor. And we can then assess that data for management. So robots give us a lot more information on every cow uh, to make better informed decisions for her nutrition, for her health. When we're working with our vet staff or our nutritionist, these are all just really great tools that we can ensure that we're producing the best quality product possible. Yeah. So for a traditional operation, typically, Mm -hmm. you know, the workers have to be there to hook each cow up to the milkers Mm -hmm. and, you know, clean their udders and do all of those things. And typically that is when that worker would notice like, oh, this cow has mastitis or this cow has some kind of infection. Whereas with Mm -hmm. your system, it detects it immediately and it's able to separate that milk from the good product, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And if there's, if there's ever an issue detected, whether it's in a parlor or in a robot, those cows are identified. Their milk is then removed from the bulk tank where the milk is stored. Uh, and that cow can then be assessed for what treatment plan is best for her. Yeah. And, you know, it's all, we on our farm, our protocol is we'll consult with our veterinarian, send milk samples off to the lab where they can be cultured and, you know, what, what course of action is needed for that cow. And, and that's standard, whether it's in a parlor or parlor is a term for a traditional uh, milking barn right. uh, or in our robot. And so it's same practices. It's just a different uh, means of collecting that information. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of cool. So each cow kind of has its own profile. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Um, in our system, which, and there is technology in traditional barns that also collect data on every cow. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just depends on what all the bells and whistles are that you install in your parlor and how you choose to milk your cows. But in ours, every cow has her own computer page. We're monitoring how well her digestion is working, um, how active she is, how much time she's spending eating, how often she comes and gets milked. Um, it's all data that we collect yeah. every day. <laughs> That is awesome. Do you have to incentivize the cows to milk themselves or do they just know to do it? Somewhat, yes. Um, The cows are rewarded with a small amount of grain when they come in to be milked. Um, So this grain is sweetened with dried molasses. So it's very sweet to the cows. It's something that she likes and is kind of a treat Um, in the same way you can train a dog by giving them treats. Mm-hmm. Cows are the same way. If there's food involved, they become very interested in what's going on. Mm-hmm. And it also becomes part of their daily schedule. Cows are creatures of habit. And so they want to be doing the same thing every day. And so our cows, you can look on the computer and it's very unusual for a cow to milk outside of her personal set schedule. And so you can actually see through the data where Mary or Mindy or whoever the cow is that she milks at, you know, four o'clock in the morning and three thirty in the afternoon or whatever her personal schedule is. And like cows truly make it into their, their own schedule. 
Interesting. So my boyfriend's a beef farmer Perfect. and every time I go out there to visit, I want to like pet the cows and be with the cows. And he's like, uh -huh. no, you can't really do that. I'm <laughs> like, cows are just giant dogs. I feel like I could get them to be friendly towards me. And he's like, oh, no, yeah. they, you know, I guess it depends on the operation, but typically with beef farming, I feel like it's a little bit less hands-on in the way that dairy Absolutely. farming is. The dairy cows, we're seeing them three, four times a day, uh, mm -hmm. going through the cows. All of our cows on, in our herd are known by a, a name. They're not just a number. And so they get a lot more one-on-one -on -one attention. Uh, you learn their personalities a little better. And that just comes from spending more time with them. And uh, they're not just out in the pasture like uh, beef cows are. Yeah, absolutely. See, that's why I need a dairy cow. I'll talk to him about <laughs> it. <laughs> oh, they're great. They're absolutely great. Are there any disadvantages in regards to the cow's health or well-being in using robotic milking as opposed to a traditional parlor? There's not really any major disadvantages. Um, the worst part about robotics, as with any technology, if you're having a glitch or something, it can hold up milking and the cows become very perturbed when they can't go and get milk when they want. So if we're having a problem with a bunch of storms like we have in the spring or the fall in this part of the country, um, it can sometimes throw our computer system down. There's safety checks on the computer, so nothing is damaged, but it's kind of one of those deals. You may be down for 30 minutes or 45 minutes. And the cows get very annoyed at that. Yeah. It, you are on call 24-7. So the worst part of it is if there's a problem at 1 o'clock in the morning when it is pouring down rain, you have to get out of bed and go figure out what the problem is. They can't wait until morning chores. Oh, and so it, <laughs> there's no disadvantages to the cows per se. It just right. interrupts our sleep schedule. And, you know. Yeah. No one likes to be woken up at one o'clock in the morning with a phone call from a computer telling you that there is a problem. Dude, <laughs> if a computer woke me up at one in the morning, I would be so angry. <laughs> oh, it's really, really annoying. And nine times out of 10, it's something that it takes longer to get your jacket and your boots on and walk down to the barn than it does to actually fix the problem. And, kidding. You know, so, yeah. So most of the disadvantages, you know, affect the farmer. It's not so much the cows other than they get annoyed at us when the system is down, um, which we've never been down for more than an hour. So it's not like they've gone that long, but. Right. Cows are like impatient children. They're stomping their foot, <laughs> mooing at you like, hurry it up. Yeah. So, yeah. That's funny. If I remember correctly, when I came and viewed your operation last summer, mm -hmm. the robots have lasers that will like detect mm -hmm. where the udders are and then Correct. go into like putting iodine on their udders mm -hmm. and doing all of that. Um, the way it works, it records the equivalent of a GPS coordinate for where each teat is located on the cow. Mm -hmm. um, we map that information in her first time in the barn. And then the robot will build a 3D model in its computer brain to know where, how that cow's udder is shaped, where her teats are located, how that cow stands. Every cow is unique. Um, so it builds a a mental picture, if you can say a computer has a mental image, and it remembers that information so that it can attach on its own. If for some reason it has an issue and isn't able to attach and have a successful milking, the computer will alert us that Hyacinth is having an issue and might need some, you know, supervision for what, whatever the reason is, if she's not wanting to hold her feet still or something, or she's dancing or something silly, you know, <laughs> we can assess and correct whatever the problem is yeah um, 
But yeah, so there is there are lasers that scan the udder, identify where the teeth are, and then it's also collecting data while it's doing that to help improve its connection with the neck uh, milking. Yeah, that's cool. If that made any sense. No, yeah, it definitely did. Oh, yeah. Well, that's what we always love. We'll have robotics teams from schools come out and, you know, they're able to see robotics that are actually in action, that it's actually something that's doing an actual job. And, you know, it's putting what they're learning into actual practice. And they're always amazed by that. And, you know, of course, to us, it's so much of an everyday thing. You sometimes forget how interesting it is. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to take a little bit of a shift and I want to talk about breeds of cattle and things like that. Oh, yeah. So you know I like talking about that. Yeah. <laughs> so how many cows do you have in your herd? And then follow-up question, what breed are they and who do you go mm-hmm. to when purchasing more cattle? Uh, so our herd is made up of about 70 um, milking cows. Um, there'll be additional cows that are, you know, young, what we would refer to as heifers or calves that will then when they reach maturity, join the milking herd uh, as replacement. As I said, every one of our cows does have a name. Uh, Our cows are entirely a pedigreed herd. So that means that all of our cows, you can trace their family trees the same way you could a pedigreed dog. And we can trace most of our cows over 150 years of pedigree behind them, which I always find interesting. It doesn't affect the quality of the milk, but, you know, it's a fun, for those that like genealogy, it's an enjoyable part of working with cattle. We milk jerseys, which are the small brown cows. Some of the listeners may remember the Borden's Elsie cow that was used in advertising for many decades. Uh, She was a Jersey cow. She was actually a a real-life cow back in the 30s (laughs) named Battle Do Lobelia. But um, so those are the cows we milk. They're the small brown ones. We have cows that can trace their lineage back to cows owned by Queen Victoria at Windsor Castle. You're kidding. So, no, I'm serious. That is so cool. <laughs> so it's always fun. You can trace the pedigrees and understand the lines better. And it's something we're able to market genetics from our best cows to other breeders that you know, are looking to improve their genetics or vice versa when we go out to purchase new bloodlines to improve the quality of our cows uh, or their ability to produce rich, creamy milk uh, or quantities of milk. We can then look at those pedigrees and look at the production records of of a bull's mother, his grandmother, you know, his sisters or daughters mm-hmm. uh, to make informed decisions to improve the quality of our cows. Yeah. Do you guys have your own bulls that you use to breed with your pedigrees or how does that work? So the, the breeding of our cows, we use three different options for reproduction. So we do maintain live bulls on the farm uh, that are used for natural service. Um, we try to select for bulls that have the best genetics possible. Um, we're selecting for things like temperament, the pr- amount of production that they're going to, uh, the amount of milk that they're going to produce, uh, the quality of the milk. So like the butter fat, the protein, those are really important things. And then we also use artificial insemination. This is a really great tool that we use for sourcing the best genetics possible. We're able to use bulls that uh, we would not necessarily be able to afford to go buy the bull himself. Some of these bulls can sell for hundreds of thousands of dollars. So we're able to access frozen semen uh, that's stored in a liquid nitrogen tank uh, and then used to breed our cows uh, to get those better genetics. So we're able to access bulls that are in New Zealand, Australia, Denmark, England, um, a lot of bulls out of Canada. Otherwise, we wouldn't have access to that. Mm -hmm. Uh, We also use things such as in vitro fertilization so we can get multiple daughters a year of some of our best cows to 
improve our genetics and implant embryos into surrogate mothers. So we're able to utilize technology in a genetic sense to improve the quality of our cows to reach their reach our herd goals for the type of cows we raise. Yeah. How many gallons of milk do your cows produce per day on average? So our cows on average are going to be producing about four to five gallons of milk a day. Um, and that amount will will change throughout the cow's lactation. So our cows, when they give birth, will start producing, you know, two to three gallons of milk a day. Uh, that will gradually increase for the first 120 days that that cow is in production. Mm-hmm. And then at that point, uh, she should be back in calf, which means that she's pregnant again. And her production will gradually tail off until she reaches about 300 to 305 days in milk. At that time, she'll be what we call dried off, which means that she's going to stop producing milk. And she will go on vacation for about three months. Mm -hmm. And this gives her a chance to have a break from milking. She can go out and be with the other pregnant cows and time right behind our house in a nice big pasture so they can chill out on their final trimester of their pregnancy for starting another 300 days in milk following the birth of their next calf. So I actually did some research, and you have Mm -hmm. a world record-holding cow. Correct. (laughs) Which is so awesome, and I actually have an excerpt from the U.S. Jersey Journal that I can read, unless you would like to Uh tell me about her yourself. Well, um, so the cow that you're talking about, her name is Barb, Mm -hmm. and Barb is probably one of the best cows that we've ever owned. Um, she was purchased from some very good friends of ours in Iowa on a when they were retiring from being dairy farmers. Well, we were lucky enough to be able to select a small group of cows purchased from them. Uh, they had been breeding cows for nearly a century wow. and they were ready to retire and you know, enjoy time with the grandkids. And so Barb was brought to Oklahoma. Uh, we knew she was a very good production cow when we purchased her. And uh, that's part of the reason we, you know, selected her to come be part of our herd. Mm-hmm. And she uh, not only broke the U.S. record for the amount of butter fat that she was able to produce in a year, but she also managed to break the world record for her breed of cow. And she ranks among the top five cows in the world for butterfat production. So it was a really cool thing to be a part of a cow like her, and she's actually living in retirement here on the farm as we speak. (laughs) That's awesome. How old is she? Uh, She's going to be 9 or 10 right now. Okay. Yeah, so it sounds like she deserves that retirement, huh? (laughs) Oh, yeah. She's she's living out her best life, and she has a friend in a little pasture not far from the house. They're living their best retirement life, and uh, we're very proud of that cow, and he left us a son, which is one of our herd sires that we're using as a bull here on the farm. And we're able to see a lot of really nice granddaughters of her in the herd, which is really rewarding to see that her genetics, not only were able to make her a world record cow, but she's passing on those qualities to future generations, which is at the end of the day, what the purpose of breeding good quality livestock is that you're always improving the quality of your animals. Yeah. I just think it's so cool that, you know, you get to be a sixth generation farmer and kind of trace back to where your family got started in agriculture. And Mm -hmm. you you get to do the same thing with your cows. You get to trace their lineage. And and that's just really cool. I feel like not a lot of people get to do that with, you know, both their family and their animals. It's a really rewarding thing. And genealogy is a lot easier in cattle than it is with people because there's no privacy issues like Mm -hmm. census records. So it's a fun project to have that 
pretty easy to do and it's always rewarding seeing what cool ancestors your cows had and where they came from and so it's always really cool there's a lot of old agricultural books that are available on google and sometimes you're able to find photos of you know the eighth or ninth great grandmother of a cow that we own and that's Mm -hmm. always fun (laughs) that's crazy wow before we move on from barb Mm -hmm. I do want to point out this fact that I saw in the Jersey Journal because mm-hmm. it blew my mind. So it says from Barb's world record, you could produce enough cheddar cheese to top 136,540 cheeseburgers mm-hmm. or butter for 125,000 biscuits. Oh, yeah. That just, I can't really wrap my head around that. That's amazing. <laughs> and that was all produced in a single year. That so that's... is nuts. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's really cool. And um, the Jerseys, which is the breed of cow that we milk, they're known for their ability to produce good quantities of extremely rich, high protein milk. As most people realize, that is a huge need within the dairy industry um, mm-hmm. as far as what we're selling on the shelf. Is you know, We're selling a lot of cheese, a lot of yogurt, ice cream, butter. And so we those high components in the milk are really important to meet that demand. So it's, it's an important thing, not only how much milk they're producing, but how much fat and protein they're producing in their milk. Yeah. Do Jersey cows produce a higher fat content than Holsteins mm-hmm. do? Yes. Yeah, so Holsteins, which are the black and white cows, are really the queens of production. So they're able to produce large quantities of fluid milk, which is obviously still very important. Right. Uh, but the Jersey is a unique breed in her ability to produce sometimes two, two and a half, three times the amount of uh, butter, fat, and protein than a Holstein would be able to. Interesting. So it's um, standard butter, fat, and milk is 3.2 to 3.5%, mm-hmm. uh, which is what we would call whole milk. And that's, that's an industry standard that's you know obviously every cow is going to be a little different Mm -hmm. but our jerseys are able to produce six seven and even eight percent butter fat which eight percent is what barb was able to produce yeah i could do a whole podcast probably just learning about the difference between jerseys and holsteins and all the different kinds of cows because that's fascinating to me well and that's what's really cool about the early history of the breed they were uh, developed on a small island in the English Channel called Jersey. Um, It's not far off the coast of France, and it's a beautiful vacation spot today, and they still milk cows on the island. Jersey grew in prominence as English nobility in the 18th and early 19th century were looking for cows that would produce large amounts of butter from their milk simply for the household. So Mm -hmm. a lot of noble families, including the royal family, put in model dairies where they would milk herds of Jerseys. um, And then there's another breed from the English Channel that also produces a lot of butter fat, which are called Guernseys. And they would have ornamental dairies where the cows were kept as lawn ornaments and for their extremely rich milk. So it's a pretty cool history uh, behind them. And they've been known for their high butter fat and protein for many centuries. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. That's so cool. I'm going to go home and just go down a rabbit hole after this, honestly. Oh, yeah. Well, look up the island of Jersey. And it's got white sandy beaches. It is a microclimate in the English Channel. So it's almost tropical. Mm -hmm. And the island is known for its Jersey cows and its potatoes. And so it's a, it's a cool, it's a cool history that the cows have and the really special one, which the Royal family still maintains a herd of Jerseys up until today. Uh, King Charles still has a herd of cows at Windsor Castle that still the same cow families since Queen Victoria. Wow. What do you feed your cows and does this differ from what beef cows might be fed? 
So dairy cows are the equivalent of a elite athlete. So they have higher nutritional requirements than a beef cow needs simply because they're producing four or five times the amount of milk. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of nutritional requirements needed to meet that level of production. So our cows in our herd are fed what's called a TMR, which in simpler terms, think of it as a cow casserole. <laughs> so it's a perfectly balanced uh, meal, which, you know, total mixed ration is what it stands for. Okay. And so we're adjusting our cow casserole about every two weeks. We're looking at how the cows are performing. Are they needing more protein? Are they needing more energy? Are they needing more starch in their diet? Um, in the same way, a Olympic athlete um, would work closely with a nutritionist. So this would, con- our cow's diet consists of what's called silage, which think of it as a fermented plant matter. So the same as like sauerkraut or kimchi, how it's good for your gut. And it's easy to digest. Okay. Same way for the cows. It's a little bit different. It doesn't smell the same, but it's still a fermented green matter that has a lot of nutrition to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we're adding things in to meet their calorie needs, such as grain and what we call commodities, which will include starches, carbs, as well as a vitamin pack to meet their needs uh, nutritionally. And then cows are still ruminants. So they require a large amount of forage to maintain their gut functioning. So we're providing them also with grass hay, uh, which is fairly standard for all cows. And then obviously in the summer months, our cows have free choice access to grazing pasture, eating as much green grass as they would like. (laughs) So two questions that I thought Mm -hmm. of while you were talking. So how much pasture do they have to kind of graze in? And do they tend to go far or do they stay closer to the robotic milking system? So we practice rotational grazing on our cows through the grazing months, which in northeastern Oklahoma is about mid-April. And sometimes we're lucky down into October until the first frost or sometimes even early November, depends on how early winter comes. Mm-hmm. So our cows are rotated in five to 10 acre little pastures. And then we're looking at what the grass is like, you know, how thick the grass is, what type of grass it is. And then the cows are moved accordingly. Sometimes that's every day. Sometimes it may be three days. Um, and our, so our cows are rotated around to best utilize the pasture we have at hand. Our cows will sometimes go as far as half a mile to three quarters of a mile away from the farm to graze. So it gives the cows a good chance for getting their exercise in, going out to pasture and coming back. We have special cow lanes that the cows can walk down their own little roads to and from the farm. That's so cute. So it's a, oh, yeah. It's a, it's a whole little deal. The cows are like like little kids on a mission, and it's, it's adorable. Yeah. So... It sounds like you have a lot to keep up with as far as trying to figure out what each individual cow needs to be eating and where Mm -hmm. they need to be grazing. I just, I'm a little ADHD for that. I don't know how you (laughs) keep up with all of it. Well, it just becomes part of your daily life. And, you know, it's like anything. It seems like a lot, but then once it kind of falls into rhythm, it just flows. And that's the great thing. I like a very scheduled life. I like to know what I'm going to be doing, you know, pretty much every day. And I don't like surprises, so (laughs) dairy farming is an excellent fit for that. I know what to expect, and I know how I need to budget my time, and so it it makes you just like in any job situation. (laughs) My mom actually used to milk cows. Her first job was at a dairy parlor when she was 14, and Mm -hmm. so when I told her I was going to be interviewing you, I texted a bunch of people and was like, hey, here's who I'm interviewing, here's what it's about, Mm -hmm. do you have any questions? 
and that way I had some stuff to ask you. And she sent me like 17. And, oh, I love it. And this is in my family group chat. And my dad is like, why don't you just let your mom interview him? Because she <laughs> she just <laughs> has so many oh, questions. I love it. Um, so some of these are from her too. Shout out mom. Mm-hmm. Oh, here's a good one. How often do you have to clean the tanks and what do you use to clean them? So our uh, milk tanks where the milk is stored, they are washed every 48 hours. That's part of where we have a set of guidelines provided by FDA to meet food quality, um, the same as any food processing plant or restaurant would have to abide by. They're adjusted for dairy farms, obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) And so our tanks have to be washed every two days. So every 48 hours, a tanker pulls in. It will collect our milk into an insulated tank, keep it nice and cool then the tank will be washed. So we're using similar to heavy-duty detergent to ensure that we are completely getting all of our equipment sterile. You know, just like any food processing, we want to be as clean as possible. We're monitoring any bacteria levels that are in our product. We don't want to ship anything to the processing plant that might have an issue. So keeping everything clean is like the most important thing that we do (laughs) all day long. Um, We probably spend more time cleaning equipment than we do doing anything else on the farm just to ensure that we're producing as clean a product as possible because that's part of our responsibility as someone in food production agriculture and Mm -hmm. we are we're not only the producers we are also the consumers of these products and so when I go to the grocery store and I buy a carton of cottage cheese I want to know that it is produced from as clean a facility as possible and so I'm able to remember that whenever you're scrubbing something to get it clean to ensure that we're producing a good product and we have computers that are monitoring the water temperature we need very very hot water to sterilize our equipment with every about two to three times a year um, and once we're detecting a problem something out of the ordinary we have a maintenance crew that comes in and takes samples of our wash water to make sure that our, our concentrations of detergents are correct that our water temperature is correct just to troubleshoot if there is anything that we need to, to adjust or anything to be doing a better job Um, And that's very important in everything we do. It's good to know that y'all are taking great care and, you know, taking care of your equipment and the facilities. So, well, it's kind of like when, you know, everything, you know, when, you know, you're advised to wash your hands back in 2020 and I'm like, people don't wash their hands already. I wash my hands so many times (laughs) in a day. I don't even want to admit to how many. And I'm just like, you know, I thought this was like normal and I guess it's not, you know. Um, No, we actually, I just had a conversation with some coworkers about that the other day and we, Looked up the statistics. This is hilarious that we're talking about this. But I was like, people aren't washing their hands. What do you mean they're not washing their hands? And someone said, yeah, I've witnessed it. And I was like, I wash my hands all the time because I'm so like nervous about that type of thing. I guess at least 30% of people don't wash their hands after going to the bathroom. And that is just, that number is too high. Oh, yeah. And I'm just like, and we, you know, of course, you know, when, when you're doing something like cleaning milk equipment every day, it kind of ingrains in your mind of everything that needs cleaned and, you know, cleaning dishes. I mean, I'm like, no, we, we can get this cleaner. Let, let's, 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 no, that needs washed. Don't, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, cleaning dishes. I get the water so hot. My skin is melting off and I'm like, but it has to be exactly. clean. Exactly. <laughs> I'm like, if you can't smell the bleach when you're cleaning the bathroom, it's not clean. It's you not. Know? No, I agree. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, if the water, if you, you know, if your glasses aren't steaming up, it's not hot enough water. No, I agree. I agree. Mm -hmm. Okay, this is also a question from my mom. So what do you do with all of the manure that collects at the barn? So all of the manure that our cows are producing when they're in the barns or around the barns, 
we're collecting that manure. So it's very important that we're not polluting any of our natural waterways. Northeast Oklahoma is known for lakes, rivers, and streams. And we want to be good stewards of the land and manage our cow waste appropriately. Um, Mm -hmm. So all of our manure runoff water is all collected into specially designed uh, lagoons, which um, are lined with clay so nothing can seep out into the groundwater or anything. Um, And these are all things that we monitor very closely to, again, be good stewards of the land. So the manure um, we have was is approved by the NRCS, which is the conservation organization that we work with. They have approved on how we use that manure. So it is 100% organic matter. So it's really good for the soil when it's applied correctly. Mm-hmm. And so we're able to use that runoff water, our wash water, um, everything we're using for cleaning, cleaning the lots, washing where the cows stand, for example, um, as well as their manure is then collected and we have it in a special manure tank that's hooked up to a tractor and then we can spread that on our farmland. So instead of using an artificial fertilizer that can be very expensive, especially currently, basically unaffordable for most people in agriculture now, Yeah, um, we're able to use something that we're already producing to grow better crops that then in return down the line can be used to feed our dairy cows. So we're using, you know, organic matter from the farm really to the root of um, reduce, reuse, recycle. So we're yeah. able to use the, you know, the nutrients that the cows are leaving in their manure can then be used to grow crops or grow grass. So it's a really great way to use everything full circle. <laughs> yeah, no, that's cool. It sounds to me like y'all kind of have a sustainable operation mm-hmm. and it kind of ties into, we talked about biodynamic farming a couple months ago. <clears throat> mm-hmm. um, that sounds very similar to, to that where you're kind of you're working with the animals and with the land and not mm-hmm. against it so that's really cool well no it's really important and i mean and this is universal throughout agriculture it's not just long-standing family farm we understand that everything that we're doing will affect future generations for a very long time i know things that my great-grandparents did on the farm whether positive or negative that we look at it now still affect us today so everything we do we need to be thinking hopefully there is a future several generations that will farm here whether it is our family or the farm passes to someone else eventually that we're doing everything we can that when they look back at what we did in 2023 that it was you know positive and that it was benefiting the land and um, that we were using you know the most up-to-date information that science has provided us as possible. Shifting a little bit to the production side of it and then how your operation transfers to milk and butter and cheese getting to the grocery store. Mm-hmm. How often do you have dairy trucks come and pick up product and what does that process look like when transferring milk from farm to store shelves? So our milk is collected every two days. So it coincides with our tank washing that we talked about earlier. So our milk is collected with a, in a large semi-truck. Um, there's five or six farms on our load of milk, for example. So it's not just our milk going in the tank. There's quite a few other dairy farms around us that their milk is also collected and taken to the processor. But there are some dairies that are shipping milk every day, some dairies that ship milk every 12 hours. It just depends on what their holding capacity is and how their area is structured as far as the pickups go. Mm -hmm. Um, Dairy farmers like us are part of a farmer cooperative. So we are a member of a co-op that helps market our milk. So we're share owners in the co-op and basically we employ someone that makes the business deals to then find where our milk is going to be going. So it removes us from having to worry about who is buying our milk. So it's not something that we're having to deal with directly on ourselves, if that makes sense. 
So our milk right now is going into boxed macaroni and cheese, for example. So if that's the contract that our co-op has right now, so our milk is being processed into powdered cheese that will then make every kid's favorite lunch, you know? (laughs) Yeah, that's interesting. (laughs) And so that's kind of how the milk market works. Um, They can adjust and send milk where it's needed, what processing plants need that product, what plants need more tankers a day. Because milk has such a short shelf life, it has to be processed fairly quickly and make it to the grocery store. So it's really important that we have all those avenues set. We know where our milk's going so that way we're not wasting any product and that that product is getting to the consumer as fresh as possible, um, which is sometimes the shortest three days. So it's a really cool, streamlined process. And we put a lot of emphasis on ensuring that there are multiple safety checks in that process from farm to consumer to make sure that we're producing a safe, wholesome product. So milk, uh, they pull samples on the farm. So that will be processed before the tanker is allowed to be unloaded at the plant. So if there is any issue, contaminant, anything that would prohibit that milk from being used for human consumption, it is never even offloaded at the plant. And then it can... So we never contaminate anything. It never really happens, but it is a safety check should it happen. Yeah. I have a little bit of a funnier question here Uh also from my mother because she has just, she has been through some trauma as far as like dairy, as far as dairy goes. What are some of the dangers of working with cows for a living? So some of the dangers of working with animals in general, cows are very large animals. So even if they maybe don't mean to, they can still hurt you just because I don't believe cows really realize how much they weigh. So our Mm -hmm. cows are 900 to 1200 pounds and that's not even that big for a cow, but it's still, they can still break your foot simply by stepping on them by stepping on your foot by accident. Mm-hmm. So there are obvious things we're very careful about. Would I say that our cows are inherently dangerous? No, but they can have an accident with you that then can hurt right. you, obviously. So they obviously need to be treated with respect and understand, you know, it may not be malicious, just an accident. Maybe something frightened a cow. Uh, maybe a dog ran by, spooked a cow, for example, or something. So, you know, it's just something we're always kind of aware of your surroundings, which is a good habit to have in any workplace, you know, even if you're not working with cows. You know, they're not inherently dangerous. We just have a healthy amount of respect and understand that they are nine and ten times our size, and they don't always realize that they're not lap dogs. Some cows will fight over you for your affection with another cow. Yeah, see, that's why I call them big puppies, because I'm like, if you... Especially with dairy cows, I feel like if you are more hands-on with them, as opposed to like a beef operation, Mm -hmm. they do get comfortable with you. And like you said, they don't realize how big they are. And so they may try to snuggle up to you and and they're Mm -hmm. massive, you know. And we have cows that they will come up and they want to, like if you're sitting on a curb or on a a log or something, they will come up and they want to literally set their head in your lap. And it's very sweet. Yeah. And of course, dairy cows are raised on bottles, so they imprint on people and mm-hmm. so they associate us as I would like to think they think of us as friends mm-hmm. you know yeah I'd be very hurt if they didn't but you know <laughs> so they, it's like a dog or anything they just don't realize that's really the main danger obviously there's always a bad apple once yeah. in a while that maybe is an aggressive cow but we find that when you treat them with a healthy amount of respect and be aware of they are a large animal it generally eliminates any risk of being injured you know anything like that Yeah, well, and it sounds like the way y'all's cows are bred, they're bred for good temperament, 
and it, oh, you yeah. know alongside the butter fat content so mm-hmm. and um, you got to remember cows also you know they've been milked for centuries and even if it's not on purpose selected for if you were a dairy maid in the 1800s you were probably not keeping daughters of hateful cows and so through natural selection of temperament right. cranky cows you know that those genes left the gene pool long ago and it makes for a, a very placid type of animal and that's something we really admire about the jerseys. They're like big puppy dogs, like you said. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Have you heard the statistic? I was thinking about this as you were talking, that more people die by cow every year than shark attack? Oh, yeah. Is that true? It probably is, but most people that are killed by cows, it's generally people who are hiking through pastures. Oh, like they're um, not supposed to be there. And they're with dogs. Oh. So even... You know, you have to remember, cows don't look at us as a predator, but their instinct still is that a dog is a predator, even if it is a small schnauzer, Mm -hmm. you know, that obviously does not have the ability to hunt cows. Yeah. But in their mind, that is still a predator. And so a lot of people, and most of the people who are unfortunately killed by cows, trekking across pastures is very common in Europe. Not so much here since we have different views of private property than are such as in the EU or in the UK. Yeah. And... Obviously, if a cow comes chasing your dog, where is your dog going to come to? Yeah. They're probably going to return back to your side and your collateral damage. Yeah. Um, now, obviously, some people still lose their lives to an angry cow, something, a bad situation, countless things. We've been very fortunate. We run a large beef herd. Um, we also have the dairy cows. and We've never encountered any type of injury from cattle. You know, knock on wood, obviously, it, you know, with a lot of care and a lot of awareness, that kind of deal. Yeah. But, yeah. But yeah, that is a correct statistic that cows are more dangerous than sharks. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What is your favorite part about what you do? My favorite part about what I do in the day is the fact that I get to wake up every morning and go out and spend my day with cows. This is going to sound very awful. I prefer cows to people. That doesn't sound and... awful at all. <laughs> So, I mean, you know, you get to get up in the morning and you get to go talk to the cows. Mm -hmm. And I know it's probably not a healthy sign of mental state, but when you carry on conversations with cows throughout the morning and ask them how their morning is going, that's probably not normal. But I think it's a wonderful life to live is getting to spend huge amounts of your day with cows. And and I know it's a corny saying, if you love what you do, you don't work a day in your life. Mm -hmm. And I really feel that with working with cows every day you get to see cows that you were there when they were born and you're still with them 12 14 years down the road yeah Um, it's a great environment to be around we have cows that we're milking great granddaughters of some of my original cows and sometimes out of the corner of your eye you'll catch a trait about a cow that reminds you of her great grandmother or something and Mm -hmm. you know so it's just really special you know you get a way to bring memories back and I know that probably sounds sappy and corny but um, no not at all I think it's it's an incredible life to spend with cows (laughs) yeah that is so cool What is something that you would tell someone who might be interested in investing in a robotic milking system for their own operation? It is a large financial outlay, but that's the fact of installing any new equipment. Dairy equipment is on the pricier end. So if you have an existing facility that doesn't require to be upgraded right now, it probably doesn't make sense to transition to robotics. 
But if you are planning on building a new facility, it's always a good idea to at least explore the options of robotics. Robotics are a fit for most farms, but obviously, you know, every farm is unique and the management practices of farms obviously vary depending on the operation, you know, ownership and stuff. It's also a transition to get used to the change in technology. Most dairy barns are not high technology, at least in our part of the country. So it's a little bit of a transition for anybody that maybe isn't used to managing a herd of cows on a computer. And it's something I think more for a younger generation. I'm technically with Gen Z with my age. So it's something, you know, I grew up with computers my entire life, whereas robotics maybe was, wouldn't be something that my dad would have invested in, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, How old so are you it's a, right now? I'm 26. Okay. I'm, a, I'm an old Gen Z or a baby millennial, or yeah, millennial, whatever you want to call it. Okay. I mean, I remember a life without a cell phone, but it was still right. there. Yeah, same. Okay, final question. Do you have mm-hmm. any favorite dairy jokes that you can share with us? <sighs> I don't really because they're all cheesy. I feel like that was a dairy, was that a dairy joke? (laughs) Yes. Oh gosh. Yeah, if you don't have any, that's fine. But somebody submitted it, so I just figured I would ask. Oh, I love it. Okay, well, do you have anything else that you would like to share with us today about your operation and dairy farming? Um, Just that we do love having tour groups out. So if there's a listener that is interested in bringing out a group or maybe it's just the parents and kids or an individual, we love having people out. Um, We love sharing what we do. Really important to share our story. You know, not everybody grew up around agriculture or had parents or grandparents that were farmers. So we really love sharing what we do on a daily basis. And so we love having people out. If anybody's interested, they're welcome to get in touch with us to do a tour. Same as with your group that was able to come out. You know, that was a lot of fun and we love, love sharing our dairy story. Yeah. So if somebody wanted to come out and tour your farm, how would they Mm -hmm. find you, get a hold of you, go about doing that? So my Instagram is probably the easiest way. Okay. Um, So it's uh, Logan, L-O-G-A-N dot C farms with an F. Shoot me a message. My email is Logan dot Courtney farms at hotmail dot com. Okay. I'll leave it in the description too. Yeah. In my mind, I think I know what people want to learn about when they do a tour, but every tour that comes out, they ask us different questions, and that helps me understand how to be a better ag advocate, share my dairy story with a variety of people. You know, everybody has different interests when they come out to the farm. Maybe they want to know about the cows, want to know about milk production, want to know about the technology, or maybe they just want to come see cute baby cows. (laughs) And so it helps me have a better understanding of what the wider consumer public wants to know. Yeah, absolutely. Well, cool. That's all I have for you today then. I really appreciate it. Thanks for calling. Yeah, thanks for your time today. Take care. All right, you too. Bye. Well, it's been awesome speaking with you today, Logan. The agriculture industry is a tough industry to break ground in, but it's also extremely rewarding as we've heard from you today. If you're still here, thanks for listening and make sure to tune in next Friday where we'll host a special Q&A episode answering all of your burning questions that you've submitted to us since we first launched the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the Hometown Fresh channel and check the description below for more information and helpful resources related to this episode.